We are all bodies of water. To think embodiment as watery, we experience ourselves less as isolated entities and more as oceanic eddies. I am a singular dynamic whorl dissolving in a complex fluid circulation. Welcome to Undead Matter, a series of conversations about where life lies in the ever-turning matter of our universe. I'm Sophie J. Williamson, and throughout this series, we will bring together artists, poets, and writers with astronomers, deep-sea microbiologists, anthropologists, paleontologists, and geographers. Each offer their own perspective on our place within the infinite impermanence of life past, present, and possible. In this episode, renowned cultural theorist Astrida Nemanis speaks with permafrost hydrologist Nikita Taniev. Astrida is known for her work around the idea of hydrofeminism. Water as an ever-shifting body that connects all things and all times, driven by a constant desire to move. Through their conversation, though, they consider how the water of the permafrost shifts these perceptions of time, space, and embodied histories. I was wondering if you wanted to begin by telling me a bit about your work. Like, pretend I don't know anything about permafrost. Like, how would you describe what it is that you do to someone like me? So I'm a researcher in Permafrost Institute in Yakutsk, in uh, northeastern Russia. All my research and queries are about the interaction between water and permafrost which is frozen soil, you would normally not see because it's uh, below the, the ground surface. So my major interest in science is the interaction between water and permafrost, uh, the frozen ground, which remains frozen uh, for several consecutive years. But I also tap on different topics which connect water to the society, like water quality and floods. This is particularly important for our region, which suffers from floodings like almost each year. So this is the perimeter of my scientific interests. For me, if I start from the place of thinking that we are all bodies of water, it's sort of an invitation to also then think about how we connect, you know, not only to other bodies of water across space, but also through time. You know, sometimes I think about water as like a time machine, like all of the water, as far as I understand, that is on this planet is all the water that has ever been on this planet. So it's just constantly cycling through new forms and taking up new bodies, you know. Yeah. At least several millions of years, or maybe hundreds of millions, we are here on our planet with almost constant amount of water that is continuously cycling throughout. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because then on the one hand, we can think about the hydrosphere as a closed system because it's always the same water. But on the other hand, it's just a totally open system because it's always becoming differently, you know, going into new bodies, doing new things and showing up differently on the earth. When I think about your work on permafrost, 
you know, that's a very particular kind of water because it is so suspended, right? Like it is not moving very quickly or rather it hasn't been until maybe recently. And I wonder if you could tell me more about how you think about time in relation to permafrost or maybe to put it differently, what does researching permafrost teach you about time? This is a nice question. Uh, in fact, two questions. I would start answering with the first one. And I totally support your vision of water as a time machine. And essentially, permafrost is water because we need ice in the ground pores to be called permafrost. And this is water which persists in a stable, in a frozen state for tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years. So uh, quite a long time. It stays at one place. It, it doesn't move. And it retains, for example, it retains within itself some dissolved gases, which reflect the chemical content of atmosphere of those ages, like hundreds of thousand years ago. And this brings uh, us to the second question of my reflections of time. Each time I touch permafrost uh, during my research, I'm starting thinking about this as like I'm touching something that has a history of tens of thousands of years. And sometimes we know more or less the ages of that permafrost, of that ground ice. And I know for sure this particular ice patch comes from like 35 to 45,000 years ago. And it impresses me all the time. In particular, this is the time we are living now, is the time when all that water conserved in permafrost comes back into the hydrological cycle through global change and global warming. So we reintroduce this water and everything which is contained in water stored in permafrost. We also involve it in hydrological cycling, biogeochemical cycling as well, if we talk about carbon, because it's not only water, but also dissolved uh, organic carbon, other things which are also stored alongside water or in water in dissolved phase. Even while in constant motion, water is also a planetary archive of meaning and matter. To drink a glass of water is to ingest the ghosts of bodies that haunt that water. When nature calls some time later, we return to the cistern and the sea, not only our antidepressants, our chemical estrogens, or our more commonplace excretions, but also the meanings that permeate those materialities. Disposable culture, medicalized problem-solving, ecological disconnect. Just as the deep oceans harbor particulate records of former geological eras, water retains our more anthropomorphic secrets, even when we would rather forget. Our distant and more immediate pasts are returned to us in both trickles and floods. And that same glass of water will facilitate our movement, growth, thinking, loving, as it works its way down the esophagus through the blood, the tissues, to the index finger, the clavicle, the left plantar fascia. It ensures that our being is always a becoming, an alchemist at once profoundly wondrous and entirely banal. Water guides a body from young to old, from here to there, from potentiality 
to actuality, translation, transformation, plurality proliferates. Water as communicator between bodies, water as facilitating bodies into being, entity, medium, transformative and gestational milieu, all of this enfolding in, seeping from, sustaining and saturating our bodies of water. There are tides in the body, writes Virginia Woolf. We ebb and flow across time and space, body to body to body to body. Nikita, I was asking you about this human desire we have to extract things from the permafrost or to dig into it or pull things up out of it. And I don't know, it feels a little bit violent to me, but, you know, I guess that's what humans do. We make holes in the earth. If you consider permafrost as a bodily entity, which you tend to do for water, as we are all bodies of water. Anyway, there are surgeons and dentists and all this, uh, for example, health uh, maintaining infrastructure, which is also tending to intrude into the human body, but it would normally uh, make no harm. Mostly, we try to penetrate into permafrost in the same particular sense of like we are drilling holes in the earth. It's not to make harm, but to protect ourselves from any unwanted consequence which comes from interaction with permafrost. For scientific exploration, we are the intruders, but we pretend that it, in a good sense, that what we do makes sense for the whole planet as we try to revive those archives hidden in permafrost for the sake of the planet. I would also say that permafrost is exposed in this not necessarily natural ways. Our world is made of interfaces, if I can say it like this. And particularly the interface between the flowing water and permafrost, we are striving to find the natural exposures where the permafrost is exposed in a natural way, is better presented, is more convenient to study. And it shows the bigger picture. For the last couple of years, I've been looking for those kinds of exposures and try to understand what's hidden from us. Yeah. You're talking about interfaces, and it brings me back a little bit to what we talked about right when we began the conversation about um, water being a time machine and permafrost being part of that in the way that permafrost holds a very old, ancient, deep time. I'm thinking now about an interface of different times, like how right now this ancient body that wants to move so slowly as to be imperceptible, you know, in its movements to us because it's so old, is now rubbing up against this rapid speed of climate change. And I wonder if there's something interesting there about, you know, it's not just that different bodies are finding an interface, but different 
temporalities or different sort of speeds are interfacing in a way that is quite unstable or destabilizing maybe is a better way to put it. Yeah, that's exactly what is happening in the moment all across permafrost regions because the ground surface in itself is an interface and it's an interface between a highly dynamic system, the atmosphere, like air is in constant motion and the heat exchange all over the ground surface at the scale of the planet is rather rapid. So what we see now is more higher temperatures and more heat penetrating the earth. And this is where the interface lies. In fact, not necessarily at the surface, but maybe a couple of meters below at the end of what we call the active layer. This is the layer where the phase changes actually occur throughout seasons. So the active layer is frozen during wintertime, but it defreezes in the summertime. It's not just the surface, but it's a volume. And this is where the permafrost shows its inertia, its stability, so that climate change is progressing quite fast. But luckily for us, permafrost is so slow, as you mentioned it, so stable, that it leaves us an extra time gap before we would meet the drastic consequences. But we still see some consequences. We look into particular localities or regions where we already observe certain permafrost disturbances. It's also about interfaces and also about diversity, because we cannot penetrate the ground with our eyes until we interfere, until we drill, for example. And when we do so, we learn that the ground, which is below us, is not uniform. It's very diverse. We have regions where, with higher ground ice content or lower ground ice content and where the, the amount of ice is highest. Those are the regions particularly disrupted because the ground ice is thawing. And the ground is so diverse, the difference can be on, on the scale of meters to centimeters. And this is why when the ground surface is exposed to high temperatures, the response is very non-uniform. And we are looking for these particular places which are disrupted, which are disturbed by thawing permafrost. And we try to find out the consequences of this differentiation. Down here, ancestors are swimming. Coral reef, medusae, microbe, the invisible inhale of an oceanic carbon breath, light just barely. A humpback blubber heavy with the residue of our toxic desire, her body more polluted than the waters that carry her. I hover below the surface suction lock in my lungs, suspended between fishy beginnings and watery potential. Their matters float past, caught up in a moving current like falling rain to the ever-deep. Drift, disperse, dissolve, remember. When the future reader comes with her knife, her fouled compass, her map, what will remain of these watery archives? Which stories will still be legible? Which ones washed away?
Because of this diversity, does that make the sort of scientific knowledge that you're seeking, does it make it quite unpredictable? Like I'm thinking also about some research that I've done in the past on groundwater systems in Australia. And one of the things I learned was that because it's so difficult to actually, you know, map these these groundwater uh, systems, because it, it is so diverse, like in this place, it's deep, in this place, it's shallow, in this place, you know. And because of that, it almost like makes it very difficult to draw any sort of uniform conclusions about what is happening or what might happen. Like it's really a best guess because what's happening right here might be very different to what's happening just over the next hill. And really the only way to know would be to poke more holes in the ground. And we don't always want to do that because that's also disturbing the very ecosystems that we're seeking to protect. I wonder if it's a similar sort of situation with permafrost. Yeah, it's totally true. It's totally true. Because we, we cannot make our boreholes like one meter distance one from the other. Because it's like in quantum physics. If, when we observe, we just destroy the system we are observing. So it's more or less the same issue. And it's the same issue with the groundwater systems you've been researching in the past. But it's intrinsically hidden somewhere in, in us. But we, we need to generalize we need to come up to very, very general conclusions on how the, the system is behaving on a planetary scale, like IPCC reports and all other global reports. They are literally global. You know, they are not discussing uh, one particular point somewhere in the Arctic or the other point. It, it, it generalizes things. And uh, maybe that's what the society wants from us, not to go into much detail, but then to describe in one sentence what's going on. And we, the scientists, are not necessarily capable of uh, doing so. But we in permafrost science, we also are touched by this inhomogeneity of our landscapes. I think especially because, you know, the region where you are working is really quite far removed from, you know, a sort of global imaginary. Literally, I think is very far away from where a lot of other people on the globe live. And so it's there's this kind of out of sight, out of mind, I think, relationship to the area you're studying. And for that reason, I would think it's so important to be specific about the problems or the issues and the challenges that you're facing there. Because I would imagine that not many people in the world know very much at all about what the ecological challenges there are. I think neither do we know that much, even the people living in the region, because the region is in itself so huge. Yakutia is uh, three million square kilometers. I completely agree. It is important to be as local specific as possible because of this diversity, because we draw conclusions. We draw particular conclusions that are true for one particular spot. And it might not be so easy or correct to generalize. But for many people, uh, from general audience and from scientists as well, like, oh, Yakutia is Yakutia, uh, assuming that it is uniform, while it is not. <laughs> so we are trying to be, uh, we are trying to be as specific as possible. To say that my body is a marshland estuary ecosystem 
that it is riven through with tributaries of companion species nestling in my gut, extending through my fingers, pooling at my feet. This is a beautiful way to reimagine my corporeality. But once we recognize that we are not hermetically sealed in our diverse suits of human skin, what do we do with this recognition? What do we owe? And how do we pay? One of the things that water teaches me is, you know, about the sort of false sense of solidity or security that humans feel as terrestrial creatures. And water can teach us important things about flow and about relationship and about the dissolvability of boundaries and the way we all shapeshift. Yet, on the other hand, if there's one thing that we humans as terrestrial creatures feel like we can depend on, it's the fact that the earth will remain solid beneath us. And yet the situation with the permafrost, it seems to me like not only an ecological challenge, but an existential one, like this idea that the earth is literally giving way beneath our feet. And it feels a little bit terrifying, to be honest. And it is so. And that is what we observe in rural communities across Yakutia. And the way people live, it depends on this stability. People get used to that their pastures are stable, their forests are stable, and all the time they are in place. It is particularly true for rural communities and remote communities, because they are so stable in their core. It fascinated me. I'm not originally from the north. I was born in Moscow, one of the biggest cities in the world, only later on, and I moved to the north. And this is what fascinated me when I arrived. It really jumped into my eyes that people love this stability. Anecdotically, like in my previous office, there was a chair that had never been moved <laughs> just because uh, for what sake you would need to move it. it nobody really used it. I mean, it stayed in its place for like years just because why would you do it? It's okay like this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, this core, this stable core is really important for the northerners. And this is why they are particularly uncomfortable with what is going on in the recent years. I would say like maybe 20 years already uh, when we observe those permafrost disturbances here and there. And de definitely people don't know how to react, how to adjust, how to adapt these are the important questions we would need to answer rather fast, as soon as possible, in fact. a very strange question I'm going to ask you, but how do you think the ground feels about this? Hmm. This is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to, to personalize the, <laughs> the ground. And from my northern perspective, which 
tells me like the stability is good, I would not feel myself quite well about this. There are cycles, the natural cycles and evolution, evolutionary things in lives of all humans. There are periods when we feel good, there are times when we are not okay, but it changes time to time and it is normal. But over a certain threshold, things are starting to be not okay, whatever is going on. And I think we are far over this threshold. So I'm me as a ground, <laughs> as, as a permafrost, uh, I'm, I'm not feeling okay at the moment, I would say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a silly, well, it's not a silly question. It's a strange question, but I partly ask it because I think, you know, my imaginary of water and the way I sort of understand water, I always sort of imagine that water wants to move and water wants to find new bodies to animate and new bodies to sort of temporarily inhabit. But, you know, thinking along with you in permafrost, it makes me consider that, you know, sometimes maybe water also just wants to stay where it is or in order to fulfill its responsibilities to land and to the, you know, biological communities that it sustains, you know, it doesn't want to be rushed on its way. And, you know, permafrost is inviting me to consider a different perspective on water where staying where it is for a long time is exactly what it wants to do. Yeah, and uh, it exists simultaneously. In fact, when I teach my students, I'm always telling them that we do our research in hydrosphere and what is hydrosphere and what is hydrology in itself. Uh, those are the processes which move the water in whichever phase, as a water vapor or as flowing water. So there are certain hydrological processes, which are in fact processes of moving water, like flowing water, evaporation or condensation, changing phase states, altering itself in different ways. But what it also hydrosphere is, is water body or water bodies, uh, talking generally. And those water bodies, as a certain uh, stable forms, they adjust themselves to be as stable as possible, like lakes, for example, which stay in their places for like ages, probably like Baikal or the African lakes. Even rivers, uh, they're flowing bodies, and water which is evidently not stable. It brings into the landscape some sort of stability in terms of what we call the fluvial equilibrium. So the shape of a river is tending to become stable in, in, in some sort of understanding. And I like the way this stability interferes with those changes which we observe all the time. The mostly watery composition of my body is not just a human thing. From the almost imperceptible jellies in the benthos of the Pacific to the Namibian desert catfish hibernating in the mud, from mangrove to ragweed, from culvert to billabong to the roaring Niagara, cushioned between fractocumulus cloud and deep earth aquifer, we are all bodies of water. In acknowledging this corporeally connected aqueous community, distinctions between human and non-human start to blur. We live in a watery commons where the human infant drinks the mother, the mother ingests the reservoir, 
The reservoir is replenished by the storm. The storm absorbs the ocean. The ocean sustains the fish. The fish are consumed by the whale. The bequeathing of our water to another is necessary for the custodianship of this commons. But when and how does gift become theft and sustainability usurpation? I often think that, you know, it makes no sense to talk about water, like water in the abstract is nothing, right? It doesn't exist. Water needs a body for it to exist. And sometimes those bodies are vast and long living, and sometimes they're very momentary and ephemeral, but we need both, right? And those sort of stable bodies of water are required to maintain the equilibrium, exactly as you say. It's such a beautiful way to think about it. I want to go back for a moment to think also again about water as an archive. And I'm imagining in my mind a beautiful painting by the Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. And it's a painting that is called What the Water Remembers. Or it actually has two titles. It's sometimes also called What the Water Has Given Me which I think is also very beautiful. And in the painting, it's from the viewpoint of, I imagine, Frida Kahlo looking down at her feet in the bathtub. All you see is sort of the water and her feet sticking out of the water at the end of the bathtub. But in the bathtub with her are all sorts of dreams and figures um, her parents, uh, scenes of when she was injured as a younger woman, buildings on fire, strange fantastical creatures. And this painting, I love it because it just conjures this scene whereby water can hold all of these different and diverse times together at once. So like in one scene of this painting, we can see Frida's dreams, we can see her childhood, we can see her future, we can see, you know, the, the mythologies that she grew up with, and it's all held together in this tiny little bathtub. And so I wonder, this painting for me is like a way of thinking about all bodies of water as holding histories of things, but not necessarily in a linear way. Like the deep past can coexist with something that just happened yesterday, yet it's all sort of held together and they're all rubbing up all of these different times and moments and even like epochs in the case of, you know, permafrost are like rubbing up against each other in this way that almost blows your mind, right? Like how the past can be so present. And I wonder what you think about this, right? Like um, what can permafrost tell us about our understanding of history and I mean here not only human history, but like geological history, the Earth's history. What can permafrost tell us about history that doesn't mean that it's necessarily in the past and already done, and we've already sort of linearly moved beyond it? Like, do you think it can teach us a different way to understand our own planetary, like our own understanding of like past, present, and future? If water remembers both matters and feelings, then perhaps not only matters, but also affect, 
is sometimes dissolved. In other words, although water preserves memory, it also washes it away. If water is an archive of feeling, it is also an archive of forgetting. Not all that is significant leaves a durable trace, nor should everything be remembered. Inscription is sometimes resisted. Yeah, like uh, this is where we are at the moment. And we absolutely understand that permafrost, well, it, it holds water, but it is in itself a sedimentary body. Because water is in the pores of some sedimentary material, sands or clays or whatever. And of course, this sedimentary material is being accumulated in a very nonlinear way, sometimes faster and sometimes slower. And we also know that some layers have presumably been removed completely so that we have those hiatuses, those lacks of sedimentary material, which for us would also mean that uh, the blackouts in history. There are particular time periods for which we cannot collect information because it's just been removed. This fascinated me a lot also because, because I'm not a, a geologist in itself. I'm a hydrologist. So I've been dealing with water and we always had this understanding that it changes constantly. And like, for example, if you take a water sample or if you perform any measurement of how much water is flowing into this particular cross-section at one point, it gives you no exact information of what's going to happen in the next moment or what has been happening before, even an hour ago, in very dynamic rivers. And permafrost, from this point of view, is more stable because we are not talking about uh, minutes and hours, but rather about hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of years, very different time scales. But then I started to discover those timelines of permafrost and geology. This was a, a wow effect, really, because it was so unfamiliar to me and so new. And I was like, oh, how come? So we just lack this particular layer of sedimentary material. And so it means as if this time period never existed. So we gain no information and it doesn't exist in our understanding at least. And those time gaps would be of a scale of tens of thousands of years. It makes me think, you know, that we think of time as this abstract concept, but the way that you're speaking, it's just like time is material, you know, like it exists in things, like it is matter. Time is matter, you know, time is water and time is rock. And um, it's not always readily revealing itself to us, you know, it's fascinating. Yeah, I'm 100% sure time is material because 
like for example for the radiocarbon dating we take one sample of an ancient tree or whatever but we need a physical entity to be analyzed this information carrier the organic part and we only know this is a tree we don't know the species or whatever we only know its geological position and then when we're performing the analysis but at the end we end up with a particular date or i don't know a certain time period and this sophisticated machine which makes an analysis attributes time to this physical entity to this matter For certain, the revelation of Darwinian evolution had already trained us in seeing ourselves as a species within a cosmology that stretched back long before ourselves. But with the Anthropocene, we were made to consider ourselves as finite into the future. Now, we must orient ourselves to the realization that not only do species and their worlds evolve, but they dissolve too. Not only do we evolve, but we dissolve, with the power to enact other disappearances in the making of an entire human-defined epoch. In other words, in the Anthropocene, a time that only makes sense against the backdrop of deep time, we have paradoxically come to be hailed as insignificant as the breadth of a fingernail on time's outstretched arm, but with the power to write new geological epochs into existence. We are now both always here and already gone. Our affective relation to time is rendered insecure. Are we really that small and that large? Who wouldn't be temporally flummoxed? When I'm touching the ground ice, which I know is 40 to 50,000 years old, I can suck it, I can lick it, I can eat it and swallow. This is a very particular thing to do, a very particular emotion, like being as close as possible to the history, to the ages past already. And you know, it also makes me think that time is matter, but it must also be place, because if we go back to the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about, you know, all the water on the planet is all the water that's ever been here. So every time I brush my teeth or boil the kettle, I'm touching something that's three billion years old. But what's particular, I think, about the permafrost is not only is that that water so old, of course it is, but it's been there. Like, you know, it hasn't moved. It's it's decided to stay there. So it's like time is matter, but it's also matter in a particular place, in a particular form, right? Because water, when we're in contact with water, we're we're constantly in contact with, you know, the primordial earth and, uh, you know, those very beginnings of water on the planet. So it reminds me what we were talking about in terms of the importance of thinking about climate change locally, you know, like, um, as many people say, you know, water isn't a problem for climate change. It's where the water is and where it isn't. 
and, you know, how fast it's moving or how fast it isn't moving. So again, I'm just drawn to thinking about the locality and the very localness of the permafrost where you are. Those grounds with higher ice content are, are when, when the ice uh, melts out completely, the ground surface subsides. And of course, where we observe Earth's subsidence, this is a nice place for lakes to form or for the water to find its stability. So permafrost, which essentially created those lakes, shares this sacrality with a particular point, with a particular locality. So this happens uh, all across central Yakutia as well. And it happens right now as the ground gets more and more disturbed because of the permafrost thaw. What we have observed all across the central Yakutia through our tower research, this is this non-uniformity of the water quality in different lakes. Some of them are salty, some of them are not, and freshwater lakes. Some of them are deeply carved into the surface, some of them are not, they're very superficial. And as such, lakes also reflect the history of this particular region across last 15 to 20,000 years. And that's what makes them so different is, in fact, their history, the time of their inception. Many of those lakes, which are present right now, have been formed around 11 to 9,000 years ago. Some of them are younger or maybe six to 5,000 years ago. That's what we've learned from other environmental archives, that the climate was favorable at that time for the thermocarst lakes to develop. Or the climate was favorable to ground subsidence or to permafrost thawing. The peoples of the north, and the Yakut people, for example, so love their lakes. There is a particular name for those, they call them alasses, or if it is one lake, it is alas. And many of those localities are sacred entities. Like the Yakut people note them as specific, special, and sacred. How are they sacred? In very different ways. Like, for example, some of the lakes are sacred because they are salty and they have an environmental features like vegetation so different from the others. So they become sacred just because they're so different, so remarkably different from the other lakes. Then, if you come back to history of Yakutian society, many very renowned people from the Yakutian people, they were given birth on the banks of this Thermokars Lake. I mean, that's so beautiful. It makes me just think if we, as humans, just treated this diversity and things that were different as sacred. What a wonderful recipe for living well together that would be. And I also like your story because it reminds us that ecological diversity is so strongly connected to cultural and social and spiritual well-being and that these things are inseparable. Bodies need water, but water also needs a body. Water is always some time, some place, somewhere. Even in our aqueous connections, bodies and their others and their worlds are still differentiated. The question then of what is, is never sufficient 
How is it? Where is it? When is it? Speed, rate, thickness, duration, mixture, contamination, blockage. If we are all bodies of water, then we are differentiated not so much by the what as by the how. But what are the specific mechanisms of differentiation? Attention to the mechanics of watery embodiment reveals that in order to connect bodies, water must travel across only partially permeable membranes. In an ocular-centric culture, some of these membranes, like our human skin, give the illusion of impermeability. But still, we perspire, urinate, ingest, ejaculate, menstruate, lactate, breathe, cry. We take in the world selectively and send it flooding back out again. Is there anything particular about permafrost water in terms of how it interacts with our human bodies? Yeah, of course. We say that we are what we eat, but we are also, of course, that what we drink and water quality across the Arctic can harm people. For example, in terms of health issues, many northerners have lost their teeth because of particular water quality issues on uh, high concentrations of taurine, for example. And uh, this is also my story, <laughs> like a very personal story. I've lost uh, most of my teeth when uh, living in the high Arctic. This is so interacting with what you, Australia, who wrote about the breast milk, which could contain cadmium and mercury and other chemical species. We would never even think and assume in our imagination that something so stable and secure and nourishing in the mother's milk can be so toxic. But in fact, it is. That's what I found in, in a paper you wrote in like a decade ago. And this is the same situation with water quality in the Arctic, the permafrost water. But drinking it, never thinking about it, it can be so harmful. Even without the human interference, without any industry and gold mining or whatever. But in fact, even in its natural state, and somehow can pose us some very particular threats. Selection traverses other more subtle membranes too, those that are either too ephemeral or too monumental to be perceived as such, yet that choreograph our ways of being in relation. A gravitational threshold, a weather front, a wall of grief, a line on a map, an equinox, a winter coat, death. Despite the fact that we are all watery bodies, leaking and sponging off of one another, we resist total dissolution, material annihilation, or more aptly, we postpone it, ashes to ashes, water to water. At what point is the past overtaken by the present? What marks the definitive shift from one species to a new one? Where does the host body end and the amniotic body begin? Our bodies are thresholds of both past and future. The precise material space-time of differentiation is only a matter of convenience, but any body still requires membranes to keep it from being swept out to sea altogether.
It was so lovely to meet you, Nikita, and your work is so amazing. It's really been my pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Strida. I've been really uh, reading through the, the paper uh, Sophia sent me about hydrofeminism. Yeah, I've been marking out certain points because this is a fascinating way of thinking of people's bodies as eddies or vortices. I'm starting to think about from the hydraulic perspective, like the tensions those vortices create with the neighboring water layers, like AD is doing it, rotating constantly and it creates tensions all around itself. That's what I teach students. It is the dissipation of turbulent energy. Like we're thinking about vortices as such, but people are also like this. I absolutely love this point. I'm a dissipation of turbulent energy. This is what I'm <laughs> going to make a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, like all tensions and friction, it transforms energy of movement to heat. So that's how we heat yeah. the world, by interaction through dissipation. I, I particularly love this point. I absolutely love it. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> this series of podcasts is produced by Undead Matter, initiated and convened by Sophie J. Williamson. For more information about the Undead Matter program, please visit us on Instagram at undead underscore matter.